knew you had committed malpractice. I waited for five hours in your frickin' emergency department, and I was sick, and I had to go to another emergency department. You guys are incompetent. Is this good medicine or not? We're all agreeing that we're going to go by the graveyard. We're going to hold hands, and we're not going to be afraid. We're afraid of a boogeyman who doesn't exist. Listen, I know where we're going. I know the swamp. That's right. bizarre, isn't it, gentlemen? I mean, that's bizarre. Hello and welcome to the October issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you via Skype, Los Angeles, Ann Arbor, and Lafayette, Georgia. The theme of the October issue has traditionally been interviews with the folks at ASEP at the Scientific Assembly who've given talks related to risk management. Last year, Dan Sullivan was really nice to give us an interview, and this year we're doing several interviews. The first interview is based on a talk given by Dr. Randy Pilgrim. Greg Henry's going to introduce him in a second. Greg's on the line. Mel's on the line. Hello, guys. Hi, guys. Hey, ladies. And Greg's going to introduce Randy. We've known Randy for a long, long time. The talk that Randy gave was on complaint management, complaint management. But clearly there's a transition from complaint management to risk management because sometimes these complaints are not about this being, I'm sorry, I'm late. But I'm sorry you got infected, you had a bad outcome, those kinds of things. So, Greg, a little bit of ground, Randy. Well, listen, it's a great pleasure to introduce Randy Pilgrim. I consider him a friend, and he's one of the big guys at the Schumacher Group, and he's really in charge of a lot of this quality assurance activity, risk management activity. I've actually spoken for Randy and his group and considered it a great honor. Randy, as we get into this subject... You followed a long line of people at ASAP, including myself, who've given the complaints and complainer talks. But I think that you bring a different perspective here because there's really three levels of complaints and complaint management. There's the actual at the doctor level. There's the medical director involved with the hospital level. And then there's the corporate entity that has to spread over across a large number of hospitals. And you guys must have, what, now 140, 150 centers. So why don't you tell us how you go about trying to put complaint management and these sorts of systems in place at the macro level, and then we'll work our way down. Actually, before Randy starts, I'm the ignorant slut of this program. So what's the Shoemaker Group, and what's your qualifications, Randy? You may not even have a high school degree, for all I know, so... (laughs) (laughs) Please explain yourself. I'm happy to do that. And that one question on that test, actually, the teacher was wrong, and I was right, so I do have a high school degree. (laughs) No, actually, I've been an emergency physician for 18 years now, and most of that has been not only practicing, but in management and administrative roles. And in the past 10 years or so, I've been chief medical officer for the Schumacher Group. And increasingly, as Greg was saying, we have grown by reputation, hopefully by delivering what our facilities and our emergency departments need. I guess we're at about 180 facilities now in 23 or so states. That said, however, we still deliver, as everyone does, patient care one patient at a time. So you're right, Greg. There's elements of scale, elements of size, elements of the sort of the large scope of what we manage that are important and demand a different skill set. But at the same time, we have to be careful not to lose the patient by patient approach. And that's what we're dedicated to. So with my high school degree, I'm trying to get that done. Well, tell us how you start at the top. And obviously, everything good trickles down. I mean, if the leadership doesn't have the mentality and the orientation 
to handle complaints well. You can't expect people at the hospital level and the individual doc to have it. So tell me what you do to sort of convey this to 180 directors. Yeah, great question. And it truly is the topic of what we do on a daily basis. And without trying to talk in sort of platitudes or ether layer, I will say that I think the most important thing that we do about managing complaints and about scaling systems as well as dealing with each individual patient is that we have a core and a focal mission about what we do. And we make that mission statement as well as the reality of the mission part of everything that we do. So we have a saying here that says that every system, every process, every approach, every analysis that we do, as well as all the training that we do for our directors and our physicians is all geared to that moment where patients experience the care of their provider. I think the most important thing that we do is to have a mission that is real, that is meaningful, and that is a compass for all of our activities. And we surround that with a vision about how does that actually play itself out. And part of that vision for us has to do with how we train our directors and what we value. So our guiding principles that we value are excellence in medicine, excellence in service to our patients, and excellence on the business side. So we have the opportunity to do this tomorrow, just like today. And we have a final principle, which is excellence in character, which is a large topic, of course. But those are our tests. Is this good medicine or not? Is this good service to our patients or not? Is this make sense from a business perspective? And is our character intact or need corrections? To be honest, that's the biggest thing that we do. Now, a lot of things follow from that quickly, which is how do we train directors? Well, a lot of how we train around patient complaint management has to do with what is our mindset and what is our attitude as a complaint comes, which is normally an undesirable thing. I don't frankly know of anyone who goes to work hoping for a large maybe even a larger stack of patient complaints than they had yesterday. I just don't know of anybody, and I would be suspect of them if I did. So this is an undesirable thing when you enter this, but we can make a choice about how we approach it and frankly see it for the opportunity that it is. These are still our patients, after all. So with that mission and vision in mind, we then train our directors one by one and our assistant directors and our lead nurse practitioners for key positions that deal with complaints as our patients approach us again for an opportunity to care for them. Give me two things specifically you tell your directors to do when a complaint comes in. Happy to. We have an approach here that we are rolling out newly. We have taken in the recent past the general approach to the typical topics of complaints that patients give you. So the patients that waited too long or the rude doctor complaints or I don't like my bill. We're changing that now specifically to LAST approach, which is listen, apologize, solve, and thank. So point number one frankly, two, three, and four, is to listen, listen, listen. And in listening, which is a skill set all its own, patients feel validated, patients feel understood, and frankly, listening without judgment is a skill set itself and requires a fair amount of self-control at times, but also a clear vision about what we're really doing. You don't have to solve anything while you're listening, but listening is sometimes everything. Once listening is happening, apologizing, which we'll again talk about later, is key when an apology is necessary or due, and sometimes just apologizing for the fact that they're unhappy with no judgment about whether that was correct medical care or not or the bill was right or not. But apologizing is key. Solving who, solvables. Yeah, the person who trained me in risk management basically said this, you are apologizing that the patient did not have a good experience. That doesn't comment on whether the healthcare decision was right or wrong. Yeah. But you want them to have had a satisfying experience in the department. Exactly. 
In fact, we have some scripting that we're offering newly now. And, you know, I'm sort of a fan of scripting and I'm, I'm a little dubious of it at times, but sometimes it's just a can opener or a fire starter for people to then adapt their own style to. And so things like you just said, Greg, is we get up every day to meet our patients' needs medically and to give a good experience for your care. And I'm sorry that that didn't happen for you. Just simple things like that just go a long way to solidify in their minds your commitment and your concern that they didn't have the experience that we got up today to deliver. Well, let me tell you the problem I see and I saw as a director and as somebody who was a vice president of a medium-sized group is that the people who ran Selfridge's department store always said the customer is always right. The average doctor does not internalize that. They do not believe that the average patient is always right, and they want to take that on right up front. What do you do about that? First of all, I agree with you. I think the average doctor, in fact, my reflex reaction still is that very thing. And so a lot of the skill and training that goes around this has to do with realizing that the patient is always right about their experience. And in fact, you're always wrong if you have to choose. So they always know what their experience is. And that's, again, what you're apologizing for. I think what we find was we train with peer feedback And we do this by having our directors come to our central office or to our regional offices. And we will train on these things and put people in role-playing situations from time to time and have people get feedback from their peers where they will literally say, you know what, you actually were trying to tell the patient how it works around here. Let me tell you how emergency medicine is delivered. Let me tell you about triage. And if you had been dying, we'd have seen you quicker. You know, so if people get into that mode, sometimes peer feedback is one of the best correctors. I think telling people this, even my telling people this all day long, really doesn't work as well as peer feedback. And sometimes if you put directors in a position, especially if they've been a patient themselves in an emergency department, where they are the complainer, they get to see what that feels like to truly be listened to as well as to not be listened to as well. So we try to create situations where that occurs in smaller group settings with coaching. Randy, you referred to it a minute ago. There's a phrase that people use, which I think is very, very helpful. And it's If you're not happy, we're not happy. It makes it clear that your goal is to make them happy. And if they waited too long or had some kind of a negative experience because of the attitude of the staff, basically it doesn't matter. As long as they're unhappy, we're not satisfied. And that, I think, goes a long way in conveying the philosophy and the message. And it's a very brief statement that physicians ought to try to remember. I ran into one of my friends at the Scientific Assembly gentleman who runs a group, very democratic group, in a relatively wealthy area, four hospitals, I don't know, 35, 40 doctors. They won't take anybody right out of residency. Their rule is, we want you to have made all your interpersonal mistakes for the first five years, then come apply with us. And I think there's some truth to that. In residency, patient satisfaction is not necessarily number one on the list, accumulating a knowledge base and a skill base is. But productivity and patient satisfaction are not high. So basically what he says is, after you've had five years and you've been bitched out, you've done this, you've done that, then come apply. I mean, Randy, what do you think about this? (laughs) Well, there's some real logic to that, I have to say. You know, there's no substitute for good experience and making a few mistakes. I would tend to agree generally. In fact, interestingly, that goes along with some of the demographics that have been published about where the unhappy patient populations really are, just demographically. Teaching institutions tend to produce a lot of them because the environment, perhaps, and many other factors. But your point, Greg, is that somehow those wonderful training centers that we do have, this isn't necessarily a priority. So both on the physician side as well as the medical 
technical, administrative, and leadership side, those skill sets need to be either an acquired taste or an acquired skill. And I absolutely think that we're Patient satisfaction has gone over the past decade, where complaint resolution has gone, and where service recovery themes have gone in our art and science. Now, this is a core competency. I mean, clearly, this is a core competency now, and a career risk, as well as a medical legal risk, if not handled well. I want to get more concrete, because I get the concepts, but I want to know what you actually say to people. So, Randy, I waited for five hours in your freaking emergency department. And I was sick and I had to go to another emergency department. You guys are incompetent. So what do you say when you get that call? What's the script? What's the process? Because they wait a long time, they pissed off, they went somewhere else. That's got to happen at your group like it happens everywhere else. So how do you initially tackle that? Yeah, well, if we can even go in and out of character here a little bit, I would immediately, as we train our directors, go into LAST, which is listen, apologize, solve, and thank. Sometimes those little cutesy things can help because right now, when you told me that, even being recorded here and mocking up a scenario, I got a reaction right away. So I got to remember, listen first. So I would say, well, Mel, can you tell me more about what happened? I had a hangnail and it was really painful. And I went there at Saturday night. It's nine o'clock and I went with my wife and my kid and I just kept getting bumped for everybody else. Everybody else went through and I know it didn't seem like a big deal to you guys, but it was a big deal to me. You're killing me. Five hours. By the way, Randy, that hangnail, that was a code for his gonorrhea. So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Understand. So if you had had a better experience than the one that you had, Mel, what would you have wanted instead of what you got? I would have got seen in less than five hours. That was what I really I wanted to get seen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that that didn't happen for you. I wish I could turn back the clock and do for you what you came in hoping for because we get up every day to do that and that didn't happen for you and i wish i could turn back the clock to do that i cannot what i can do is care about you're being upset right now uh would you like to tell me more about what happened for you or can i move forward to something that i can do for you right now given what happened well i want to know is it going to happen again is it worth even going to your emergency department is it always like that no it isn't always like that which again is part of why i'm sorry that that happened to you uh, we want to meet all of our patients' needs whenever they come and their expectations both. That's important to us. So it doesn't always happen like it happened to you, I'm happy to say. But I will say this, this is important to me. And the fact that you're telling me this is going to allow me to look back and see what happened while you were there. Why did you wait five hours? And that matters to me. I'm alarmed to hear that, to be honest with you, and I'm concerned about whether our team was focused, our doctors and nurses were focused, or whether something else happened that maybe wasn't even avoidable. I don't know. But you have my commitment that I will find out. I can solve that. And you have my commitment to do that for the next patient so that your concern doesn't go unheard or unaddressed. By the way, five-hour wait at Mel's place would have been lightning care. Isn't that right, Mel? Like, oh, my gosh. We would, the patients would be praising us. Thank you, Doc. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Only five hours. Yeah. So that was actually working very well on me psychologically because I really wanted to be pissed off at you, actually. I was trying to get into the role. And I could be psychotic and then there's nothing you could do. But sure, um, sure. that certainly worked very well. But what's your next step then? Would you actually call them back and say, look, we found out that we had four teen children who under the age of five or with meningitis and we just couldn't get to you and we're sorry we were with the grieving families? Do you follow yeah. them up with a concrete, here's what happened? 
Yeah, so a lot of this discussion is in the ideal and has to be tempered into the practical, but we teach from the ideal, absolutely. So if we did continued on in our scenario, I would have agreed with you about what you would like to see in follow-up and gave suggestions if you didn't have any. So I would say, would you please let me go and find out what happened? And I will specifically find when you registered your chart and what happened throughout that. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to be able to call you back and tell you what I learned because of the fact that you thought enough to call me and tell me about your concern. May I call you? I'd go down a path like that. See, if you did that to me, then you have just disarmed me. Maybe not completely, but you do this? That is your scenario? That is what we teach from, yes. Now, I can't tell you that that always happens, nor can you tell that with your residents, the care that you, you know, but that is what we recommend. So we recommend an approach that's just not receptive and reactive, but is engaging with the senior purpose of restoring confidence, fixing the fixables, and allowing the patient to get to the point of resolution wherever possible. Now, Randy, at my last hospital, the director not only took this seriously, but he turned it over to the doc or the nurse who they were complaining about, and their job was to call the patient, get to the bottom of it, resolve it, then get back with him so he could put together a final letter or note back to that patient. And if it wasn't resolved, then he took charge of making sure that people were happy. And I think that the administration kind of viewed that as the standard that the doc or the nurse or the PA or who's ever involved was going to suck it up and try and patch this thing up. And I think that it went a long way in making people a little more aware. Like, it wasn't going to be just the chief of the department who handled complaints. It was going to be the person responsible for the complaint. And they had to pay attention to this. Let me give you another point of view, though. Having recently been the director of a department for the last 25 years, there are certain complaints where the patient really doesn't want to talk to the doctor who is discourteous to them. They want to talk to the director of the department and make it clear that they were unhappy, but they don't want to deal with this other person again because of the tension that is going to occur when that happens. So I think that there is an opportunity in some cases for the director to act as an intermediary between the patient and the offending physician. Now, it's a different matter if the patient had to wait a long time. That's not necessarily the doctor's fault. It may have been a departmental issue, etc. And that generally can be handled as Randy suggested. And I think, Randy, you did a terrific job. And I would agree with Mel that it was very disarming, your approach. It's clear that you have considered this in the past and that your response was rather spontaneous, yet you have done it before. So it sounded, you know, I was impressed. But I think you have to be a little bit careful in terms of Greg's idea of making the doctor, he was the cause or she was the cause of dealing with this problem because I think that that may make the patients feel a little bit uncomfortable. Truly, and just to resonate with all of that, Greg, what I was thinking as you were talking was that as many of us have had experience on just this call here, there's a wide variety of emergency department settings and maturity of the groups that are there, the physician groups, mid-levels, etc. But if you speak to the mature one, that can go very well as long as you haven't placed the doctor in a rather incendiary position or one that's right. likely to be. There are certain personalities you should not put in that position because sure. they are obviously not the right mix, not the right set to solve those kinds of problems. Yeah, indeed. But the benefit, which I think you were getting at, which is 
tremendous when it happens goes in the direction of a team approach. So if we are a team and those are all of our patients, then that's a wonderful approach. And then frankly, as long as the physician has the skill set that's required, even to receive your own complaint from your own patient back at you, whether it was your fault or the team's fault or whatever, that can be tremendous. The learning is just exponential when that happens. By the way, we ought to take this back to some risk management. And if you look at all the papers published by Hicks and those people who are into the complaint management world, there is no question that there is a relationship between the number of complaints and lawsuits which come down the road. There is probably two, two and a half times as many lawsuits in those doctors who are getting the majority of the complaints. So we shouldn't think this is just an interpersonal thing. When people are angry, if they get some satisfaction, they're less likely to pull out the sword and talk to an attorney. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this literature is well known. You in particular know it very well. When we reviewed the talk at Scientific Assembly last week, we looked at some of those data as well. So if you ever just really need a little nudge, if not a big kick to care about this, there's some sobering data about that, actually, looking at when satisfaction is very good or good. I saw a study here that looked at 612 satisfaction survey responses in an eight-year period of time and the frequency of suits which are really the end product of dissatisfaction as well as outcomes, hopefully, was between 0 and 4% in the very satisfied group. And if you go to the very dissatisfied groups, 13 to 19%. So those kinds of stats are absolutely out there. Very clear. I agree with you. And interestingly, and again, I'm going to repeat for some of you on the call here things you very well know, but for others, communicating. Just being communicated with, even in the setting of long wait times, as the Press Ganey data showed. If you've been in the ED six hours and your average satisfaction scores are 44.3%, which is abysmal, you can increase that to 95.2% just by talking and communicating to their satisfaction. So complaints become another opportunity to communicate to their satisfaction, as well as disarm the concern and make them believe they had an advocate all along, even if it didn't show up in the ED. There are some policy issues that allow this idea of frequent communication to not be a random event. One of the things that we used to do is have the expectation that somebody would communicate with the patient at least every half hour, whether that be in the waiting room, hopefully they weren't waiting, that it had to be done there, or even in the treatment area. There is a lot of time that goes by and the idea of somebody updating them every half hour, which is not an unreasonable time frame for a nurse to go in there and say, here's what we're waiting on, or here's what the expectations are, and we expect that you'll be getting your results in about mm, that kind of thing, I think is, as a matter of policy, a good thing to do. And it doesn't allow the individual who's working that day to, to be the determinant of it. This is the way we do business. This is the expectation. We've been talking about some complaints that relate not to medical malpractice or medical outcomes. Right up up until now, we've been talking about the doctor is not nice to me. I had to wait too long. Those are obviously legitimate complaints. But the ones that are a little bit scary now are the ones that relate to outcomes that are not what the patient thought they ought to be. And we're treading into the issue of does apology equal acknowledgement and state laws that kind of address this. Randy, did you go into any of this element? Yeah, we did. We talked about that. So if you go listen, apologize, the second of those before solving and thanking the patient is apologizing. So what are you doing when you do that? 
So we touched on an emerging and very nicely emerging body of legislation, loosely referred to as I'm sorry legislation. You may have touched on this in your series or will. Uh, 30, 30 states. So yeah, okay. So 30 states have this now, although there is a variable scope and variable protections, it does cover statements and expressions and gestures, both by the physician and by someone acting on their behalf, generally speaking, that have an apology or expression of benevolence or sympathy or concern for the patient or to their representative. So someone on behalf of the doctor can say this stuff. You can say it to the patient or to someone else. The key is to get legal advice in your state, of course, because you have to know what your state law says so that you're not acting outside the scope unknowingly. But the really nice thing is that it really allows you to feel comfortable doing what we do, which is to heal people or stand on behalf of healing and resolution like we did earlier in this series here. And so that's very nice. So the key for you is to know, does your state have this or not? And if it does, what does it say? Well, the other thing, Randy, though, is you'll have to agree that when you walk in and say, I'm sorry, that's not the same. Lawyers would like to think, I'm sorry, is the same as saying I'm guilty. Correct. Feeling bad is not the same thing as saying I've caused a problem. And I think that everybody has to take that, particularly when we talk about these new techniques, which have quite frankly, come from here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Rick Boothman at the University of Michigan has perfected this apologizing to the patient sort of thing, but there's not usually the emergency department setting where that takes place. And I think we need to keep that separate because you can't just go running into a room and say, geez, I'm sorry I killed grandma. We have to be kind of careful how we do these things. I think it was important for Randy to acknowledge that although there are states that have this, there are states that don't. And one of the things that the people have written about to say is that all of these are not consistent. So you need to be really kind of careful about in your state. And I think that Randy's got hospitals in 26 states. The doctors there need to probably be familiar with what their state allows and doesn't allow in this regard. In California, it's pretty easy. If we get into one of these situations, we call up our insurance company to try to learn because we have a California-based insurance company and we try to walk this fine line between what is safe to say and making the patient feel better and not incriminating yourself. And one of the problematic areas is now that many of these hospitals have taken this policy of full disclosure where if there's been a negative outcome, they do one of these deep dive root cause analysis. Right. They do this root cause analysis after they get the answers, then they kind of meet with the patient and the nurses and the doctors who were involved. And that can be a very problematic situation because the hospitals have taken and gone ahead and done something which your insurance company may not be all that fond of. And Randy, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I do. This is really a great discussion. And it's something we're working on. We don't have this where we want it yet, but we've realized that this is a key area for us. So you were mentioning state-specific. What does your state law say? And let me just give you an example to drive to my point. Illinois has a law that's limited to expressions only of grief, an apology, or explanations made within 72 hours, and I'll read this, of when the provider knew or should have known of the potential cause of such an outcome, right? So you got a time limitation, and you have some more language around that, doubtless inserted by maybe plaintiff's concerns, bars, et cetera. So those things may limit what you can do. Now, where we want to be with this... Randy, can I just ask you specifically on that, is the state law saying you have to do that? What is the state law exactly saying? I'll give my disclaimer as a non-attorney, but my understanding of the law is that if you apologize, those are the things that surround what you can and cannot do and whether they can be used against you in the course of defending a suit. So it doesn't say you have to. Okay. So it's if I felt bad and I said to the patient, I'm sorry, they're telling you 
the words, the framing that you can use that means it's okay to say sorry, but it can't be used against you. Correct. It's the safe place. It's the safe words, the safe framing in that state. Correct. Well, Randy, I do this on every show that we put on just so that Mel doesn't sleep well at night. I do know of two cases where the emergency physician's insurance company decided they would only defend under rights of reservation because the doctor, following a hospital policy, had gone in and spoken to the patient. And since the hospital and the doctor did not have the same insurance carrier, and I'm sure that's usually the case with the Schumacher group, then what you're going to find is they may be at odds with each other. And so I do think that you need to put all of this into perspective And the emergency department is a minute, second by second kind of event. I think you have to be a little slow about confessing all your sins immediately. But if the state has a law, does that trump whatever the hell your hospital or your insurance carrier says? A more complex question, because none of the states, and Randy, correct me if I'm wrong, all 30 of the states now, basically nobody mandates that you go in and talk to the patient What it says is, if you talk to the patient, certain things cannot be used or quoted or admitted into evidence or cannot be considered by the jury if there is a malpractice action. That's exactly correct. And on a practical level, getting back to Rick's question earlier as well, Mel, the way that this works is we want to allow the possibility of apology for the purpose of resolution. And if resolution occurs, it diffuses either the nastiness of a suit or the occurrence of one in the first place. We have to do that according to what is allowed and allowable with an eyes open approach. So where I was headed earlier is that we will be dissecting on a state by state basis for our groups what is allowed, what is not. And actually, our thought at the moment is that we'll put that into a template documentation tool that can be used, customized per state, so that when I am responding to a patient complaint as a medical director, say, and I apologized according to the law, that I can then attach that as a part of the documentation of the patient complaint and the actions and interventions that were done. And then, as needed, I can demonstrate to the insurance company that I've acted in accordance with what is allowed. And if necessary, I can even go back to the policy and say, you know, this was allowed under your policy as well. The key is to be able to demonstrate later that you have not done anything to jeopardize the rightful defense of the suit, according to any insurer. And what's often lacking is the ability to document what you did or the ability to demonstrate it later in some reasonable fashion. Greg makes a good point, though. There are, particularly when you have multiple policies at issue, and there's finger pointing and there's deep pockets and questions about it and who should really pay. Almost anything can be used for almost any purpose. And usually that goes down to how you're managing the claim, how you're defending it and what documentation you have. So I see an opportunity for us to assist with that while not diluting the intention of these laws. But that needs to be discussed openly between the group and the hospital early on before there's a case. Indeed. So that we don't stumble into these sort of things. And by the way, Randy, I want you to confirm for me that it's not a requirement when you say, I'm sorry, in Louisiana, that you have to offer them a pot of gumbo, too. Do you? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> it's not, not required. required. But it helps, yeah, but it does not require. Randy, help me again. L is listen. A is apologize. What is S? Solve. You fix what can be fixed right now. So that's acknowledging that sometimes... It's awfully basic stuff that the patient wants. They're really mad and angry at times, but sometimes all we did was not get their insurance card and file it incorrectly. So that's a fixable. You fix that, while at the same time you care about 
the impact that had on them, but sometimes fix that. Sometimes we give them a prescription that was not appropriate. They were allergic to it or something. So you fix that. So that's an invitation to fix the fixables, but it's also an invitation not to try to do that first and ignore the fact that this is a relationship as much as it is medical care, both. And then you thank them. That's the T. One of the things I was interested in is, do you ever give them any kind of discounts to acknowledge their discomfort, pain, suffering, or unhappiness? Or do you do anything positive in terms of, listen, I'm really sorry. If you're not happy, we're not happy. As a token of our concern, here's two movie tickets or something to that effect, which is a little tangential, but may be appreciated as well. Does that ever come up or will make a modification on your bill or something like that? Be careful. Be no, careful. I, I, listen, I know where we're going. I know the swamp, so, but I'm baiting Randy a little bit here. Yeah. yeah, so thanks for the bait. Does it ever happen? Yes, it happens. It varies a lot by facility. Here's where we go with that when we train and when we advise people how to handle this. The most important thing is to listen to what the core issues are for them right now and for them to feel your commitment. When you get down to thanking and maybe can I give you something, you are constrained by both hospital policy, procedure, billing laws and regulations, governmental, non-governmental. There may be a limit to what you can do, so we train specifically on what those things are. The most common thing that is done is when you are able and when it's proper to address an issue with the bill itself, we have policies and procedures which probably go beyond the scope of what we can do here that will allow people latitude or tell them you don't have any latitude here. So I guess that's a, yes, we have policies for that. We tend not to do much for other stuff, movie tickets, etc. We tend to be big on the relationship, little on the extras. That's usually what the patients are looking for anyway. How'd I do with the bait? I think you did well because there is this issue of waiving co-pays and things like that, which you just can't do that with any systematic approach. I mean, you might be able to get away with it And I don't even think your company would even consider getting your way with it once. But, you know, those things can happen. But to do it on a systematic basis, you're breaking all kinds of laws and rules and regulations if you were to do that. I can hear the first question at the time of trial. Doctor, you gave them the discount. You refused money because you knew you had committed malpractice. Be very careful how that works. That's a really interesting point. Let me pick up on what Rick just said, but that's exactly right. We generally find that on a facility-by-facility basis, as well as our guidance to them, that the copay and deductible layer is just not something that we can fiddle with and should not. There's all kinds of reasons, including bureaucratic and processing reasons, as well as prohibitions not to do that. Interestingly, though, Greg, to your comment just now, I pulled some data from our 16 years of existence as a group and said, how many patients have we seen cumulatively over that time? Well, it turns out it's almost 18 million patients that we've seen. And then I looked at when we have discounted the bill in, again, those proper times when you can do so. And when anything about the bill has been addressed in favor of the patient to the relative disfavor of the group and said, how did that play out in either pre-suit or in lawsuits themselves? And it turned out that there was not a single case where that had ever been effectively used in prosecuting or resolving a claim. And it had never been used against a physician effectively. And in fact, I was shocked to find that only about five instances was it ever even brought up. So frankly, if I was a plaintiff's attorney, I would consider bringing that up for the reasons you just said, Greg, but we just don't find it's that big at all. I think that's two things. One is we typically are able to satisfy most of the patients. Our frequency of suits is very, very low. It's not solely because of that. But I think the other thing is that people just don't find the shoehorn they were looking for to twist the course of a claim on the plaintiff's side. They just don't find that somehow. I think that's probably right. But again, one of those things that all the points we've made here about when you're giving financial discounts, 
you may run afoul of the federal government, the insurance regulations. There are all kinds of things that you have to think about, and we need to keep it in mind. Okay, Randy, but what about the situation where a patient complains four months after the visit? They never complain initially, but now you're getting a complaint that relates to some service issue or some outcome issue, but it's coming late. And my sense of those is really what's coming on is the patient has been taken to collections. Their heat is being put on them. They're getting the phone calls and the dunning, and they're trying to kind of deal with this by saying, well, maybe if I can complain about the care, it would mitigate me having to pay this thing. Yeah, that's a perfect scenario. That's a focal piece of what we teach to as well. And, you know, just like when you walk into a pediatric patient's room, you've sort of got your doorway diagnosis, but then you don't always disposition the patient from that. So my suspicion from a doorway diagnosis standpoint is that's exactly what happened. And it almost always is. The questions though, as you take your initial suspicion is, is it truly the bill that's the problem? And it's solely the bill. And this is, as you say, is being leveraged now in the complaint process by the patient, or did the bill become the last straw on the camel's back and they were really were not that happy in the first place. I mean, we know from literature that only about 25% of patients that are truly unhappy in a receptive complaint system, not an active one, but a receptive one, only about 25% of unhappy patients actually pick up the phone and complain. So that could be one of these two. So part of the listen and apologize and solve and thank process is to uncover what's really going on. Let's suppose that it's truly just the bill. What should one do? Because if it's not the bill, then it's whatever the issue is, and you take it from there, as we've discussed before. But if it's truly the bill, the first thing we ask people to do is to review the care on the documented medical record, make sure the care was okay, and you've always got to have that underfoot. There are a lot of mistakes I see is when people don't review the medical care that we delivered. Second step is review the coding of the chart to make sure the coding was done accurately. Because there are times when the coding was not done accurately, and in that case, you need to fix that apologize to the patient, fix that, and address it. So sometimes that actually is an easy fix and addresses the patient's concern. Make sure then that the billing was done accurately if the care and the coding was okay. There are errors at times there as well, and sometimes patients here inappropriately turned over to collections. So you can fix that if you find that error. And then you're down to whether you followed the policies and procedures, the regulations and the guidelines. And if you're square everywhere there, and it truly is a billing issue, then you really have three options, which is to say, I'm sorry that you're disappointed with that. We really have to stand by the care and the coding and the billing and the bill. I have to stand by that and inform the patient. Or if you're allowed to, again, being very careful that you're not running afoul, then you can address the bill, reduce it as appropriate, or the third option is to set up a payment plan to address their needs. So there's a whole skill set surrounding that that tends to be somewhat template-driven and flowchart-driven, if you will, and we equip people with that. Randy, during my 23 years as a department director, I probably wrote 200 letters to insurance companies or to intermediaries of some type to try and get people paid or to get something paid. And those people were incredibly grateful Mm. that we took the time to do that. And actually, we made fast friends and repeat business by dealing with their problem. I think there's a lot of good data to suggest that if you actually take a complainer and handle their complaint respectfully, they'll come back and see you again. They liked what you did. And so I think this is a chance, particularly on the financial side, I will always get on the side of the patient and try and help them out in those regards. Well, that's a great idea. I don't know that we do enough of that, actually. I think there's real opportunity there. And I really agree that we had the saying, too, that people will forgive you almost anything if they believe that you really tried on their behalf with the concern they hold. By the way, it works the other way, too. I was in line at a McDonald's, and there were four or five people in line. 
And the young man handling that particular register had Down syndrome. And the woman in line right at the counter was hassling this kid. You should have seen the hatred (laughs) in the other five or six people. Americans will forgive you anything if you're trying. They really will. And this kid was trying. And this woman was being a bitch. And there was no question about it. I thought that really we were going to surround her and kick the crap out of her for giving this poor kid tears. And you know what? I think they do give us a lot of leeway when we actually try and do things better. Randy, are there any other areas of your talk that you would like to cover that we haven't covered? You know, I'm looking, there's a couple of things maybe that would be worth mentioning. You know, the question for directors often is, when do I involve an attorney? Or when do I escalate this to the risk management functions that my facility has or our group has? And so we have some basic rules. I'll just tell you what ours are. They're certainly not rocket science, but these are ours. And they tend to be a fairly low threshold because we find that the referral or involvement of risk management skill sets or attorney skill sets probably doesn't happen often enough, generally speaking. We find great outcomes when it does and when the approach is good. So ours, the indications of higher risk, an invitation to escalate are the threat of a lawsuit, a claim or litigation, a demand for money, if they mention an attorney is involved or retained already, or if they allege an incorrect diagnosis with a poor outcome, even alleged. And then four other ones, death, return visit, and we use 24 hours, a same complaint. There's an adverse outcome section and repeat calls concerning the same complaint, much like repeat visits to the ED. So those are our thresholds. And then the, the key after this, and this is very important, I think, for the philosophy of managing these, the way that we work with our risk management resources, and we do have attorneys in the group that are on our staff, but we also have a lot of risk management professionals that are non-attorneys. When you escalate to an attorney, what I find a lot is that my colleagues, our peers, will at times think, let me throw it to the lawyer and let the lawyer beat him up. But quite honestly, there's three or four ways you can involve risk management or attorneys. One is to simply have advisement. And you remain the communicator with the patient, but you've got attorney or legal advice if you think you need it. So nothing changes according to the patient, but you've got help. And that's the biggest area where I think we make an impact and we've seen the best returns. The second is you and the attorney co-manage and co-communicate with the patient. And the third way is the attorney completely takes it over and is the sole communicator with the patient and or the representative. So if you know you got those three gears, it helps. And if you know what the thresholds are, that helps. And then, of course, we got well-trained people generally that did have a good gut on these things as well. And if you just think you want to have a conversation, it's available to you. So I find a lot of opportunity there also for handling these on the fly if you get nervous or concerned. That's great advice. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We had multiple instances where we would call our insurance company, tell them our concern. It was a case for whatever made you concern is, and they would connect us with an attorney that they chose for us to advise us on how to handle it. But we continued to handle the case, but we felt that we were on much thicker ice because we had, number one, advised the insurance company. They provided some counsel through an attorney that they provided for us. But we continued to be the interface for that interaction, but felt more confident. Yeah, I think if you don't have to have the attorney in the room at any moment in time, if you can continue to be the communicator, everything is better. Until, of course, they escalate the war with an attorney, then it's probably necessary you're represented. But I think the vast majority of these things can be settled without resorting to attorneys. Indeed. I think the insurance companies generically would prefer that you have a low threshold for involving them in matters that you are concerned about when the outcomes are an issue. 
Right. But that doesn't mean they want an attorney to take it over, but they at least want to know about it. And, of course, in a claims-made insurance world, you want to talk to your insurance carrier to make sure it's properly documented. Well, the other thing is that they have people on their staff who are not necessarily attorneys, but are experts in risk management and who have gone through some of the same issues that you're dealing with in the past who can give you some advice that doesn't involve incurring any expense, whether that you're using a in-house attorney or not having to pay someone to give you advice. Yeah, indeed. In so much of dealing with attorneys, which I used to think ill of, I don't anymore. I think it's just a function of the roles and responsibilities. But a big piece of dealing with attorneys is managing the attorney. And so if you stay in the communication mode, you stay in control of the management of the attorney. Because attorneys sometimes want to make great big deals out of things that don't need to be that big. You just need a little help. And so we found that distinction of communicator versus advisor versus who's in control to be very important. Can I ask a question, another practical question about the documentation of all this process? Do you, as you're going through this from the benign ones to the more serious, are you writing notes about these interactions? Are you recording them when you have phone calls? What are the specifics of that? Almost no one records them, although our billing company does have recorded lines that we will be able to draw on if needed. But we generally don't record them. But we do train around the following documentation principles. We, I mean, first of all, we train people to make sure that their documentation systems in the ED is not different or in conflict with those in the hospital, nor with those things that we recommend. But the big questions that come up is, what is the documentation system in the hospital? What's the level of involvement of risk management? And the big questions that come up is, who owns the document? Where is it kept? What's the retention policy around that? And then make sure that you have the proper legal advice. Usually what that means is that there is a documentation system as opposed to there isn't one. Rarely is there recording, as I've said. But we are big ones for making sure that certain things are documented. And they're typical things that you would find in our discipline. You know, the type of complaint, the source, the issue, the findings, the discussions, etc. But the key training pieces typically are the things that are missing often in retrospect on the documented portion of patient complaint management. So what we often find is that the discussions with the patient or the physician involved or the nurses or other team members are not on the documentation. And so what we train is that the documentation is just like the patient encounter. There's a system for this. There is completeness and thoroughness that is expected and that all elements are a part of that. So the discussions are a part of it and importantly, the attachments that should be on there. So the patient record for Pete's sakes, but also if you find emails or letters or the complaint letter itself, the initial bill, if there's a revised bill, that all needs to be part of the documented complaint record. There's a warning here. Make sure that if it's in the quality assurance system, it's so labeled quality assurance. Because in most of our states, quality assurance materials are neither discoverable or admissible at the time of trial. You should not be storing these records of contact with the patient in with the patient's regular record. Absolutely. Through a quality assurance document and any meetings you have to discuss this case should be declared as quality assurance meetings because the last thing you want is somebody rummaging through the candid materials which you put on those records. Although, Greg, you've brought this up before and Every time you say that, I got to think that if you label everything that you do as peer review quality assurance, you know, obviously that's a very self-serving kind of tactic. And the fact of the matter is, is that these quality assurance meetings occur once a month, once every other month, something to that effect. So I would ask, Randy, how do you feel about what Greg said? I don't think that you can declare everything you do quality assurance just because you say it is. 
certainly there may be a problem with trying to have too big an umbrella. We do find states differ. So getting advisement again, as we've discussed, is important. But it's interesting. There's sort of the declaration of, and then there's the typical processing of and how things are labeled and handled. And and we find that if things are labeled as attorney-client privileged, and they really are. So the question of who has the document, we recommend that the hospital attorney is the owner of the document in almost all cases, which means that if you didn't have a quality assurance meeting and couldn't have declared it in the minutes as well as in the meeting, that you still have some umbrella of protection that's proper. That's got to be backed up by a hospital policy and procedure, of course. So if your policy procedures, document ownership, and your labeling is okay, then you get closer to what Greg said. But I would have to agree that certain umbrellas are too big. I think the biggest problem that we find is not that. The biggest problem we find is that people don't act according to the policies and procedures, don't know what they are, or are sloppy with the labeling. Randy, anything else that you'd like to finish up with? No, just a word also about in the complaint process, I would say, and that is that in an active complaint process, as opposed to one that's purely receptive. So in other words, we encourage processes that actually go out and seek patient concerns, knowing that only 25% or so of patients who are really unhappy with you actually will tell you about that. And if you believe that our core mission is not only to deliver good care, but also a good experience with that care, You know, there are times when you're limited by resources and by your own time and so forth, but usually the active processes yield a lot of good results, and they really teach you a lot about how to make your whole department, your whole team better. So I get the question a lot, well, what's the right number of patient complaints? What's the right incidence? You guys have probably had those questions forever. Before you go on, there is this model where they're talking about, as an example, people talking about pharmacy-related mistakes. And if you don't have enough pharmacy-related mistakes, they view that as a reporting issue rather than you've got a pristine pharmacy process. Right. (laughs) Right. That's bizarre, isn't it, gentlemen? I mean, that's bizarre that we view it that way, but I understand the system and what you have to do. So what do you do? Do you make up some complaints if there aren't enough? What I don't want is a doctor thinking, well, I'm allowed to have up to two so that means there's two more people I can piss off this year and it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> I get a freebie on those two. That's exactly where I don't want to go with the training of my people. Well, exactly, which is really why I've become, I'm almost getting like you, Greg. I'm a little cynical in my old age, if I may say, <laughs> but I hate that question because I don't know what your system is. So if your system is active, it's exculpatory, it's proactive, and it tries to find areas of concern in a patient callback sort of mode, you're going to get more quote-unquote complaints. You're going to find more concerns because they're out there. We know that. The literature tells us that. So your number may be different and a lot higher, and it may not be the one that the administrator wants because I swear they all want zero. And zero makes me nervous. Zero is the wrong number. So I guess where I was going is sometimes when you get that question, though, it's it's a legitimate one from the standpoint of managers. So I invite people to look at what your system is, look at what your own norms would be, and say, what number do you want? What process do you want? What outcomes do you want? And focus on that, not on the number. At the end of the day, you do have reporting responsibilities that have to be customized for your stakeholders and those concerned. But I would be a whole lot more worried about the satisfaction of your patients and their loyalty than I would about the number of complaints if you can get it there. Randy came up with the idea of callbacks and the uh, value that they can have. They sure can generate a lot of information that you are not aware of when you have a nurse callback system and they are calling patients routinely or selected patients or frankly as many patients as you can. They will give nice attaboys to the staff or who deserve it and they can be conveyed to that staff, the nurses and physicians. And they can also basically... The people are very open about 
indicating that there were some problems with the visit that you'll never know about in terms of a formal complaint or press gainy, those kinds of things. You'll never find those out because you haven't sought them out adequately. You know, that's a great point. And if your senior purpose is to deliver the best care that you possibly can with your resources in your ED, as opposed to a senior purpose, which would be get all my complaints handled and off my desk, that's two very different ways of looking at this. And so back to that mission. So one of the ways we wrap up frequently our training sessions, our renewal sessions, et cetera, is to talk about the role of the mission in this, really. And I think there's a way to be too Pollyanna, certainly. But I'll tell you, everything gets better if you remember what we're doing, really. And then, like you were saying, Rick, a minute ago, you find compliments, too. Even in the complaint process, you find compliments, interestingly. And so we talk a lot also about making sure that if your mission is to make sure your physicians know when there's an area of concern, absolutely make sure when physicians and you know when there's an area of strength and excellence. And our challenge is often make three times more out of a compliment than you did out of a complaint and handle the complaints very well. So we talk a lot about focusing on that, and we've all had them. We've had complaints, but when you get the compliment... Whether you admit it or not, that really makes the day. And that's what we showed up for this morning. Randy, I got home from the scientific assembly a couple of days ago. And the first message on the email was the inquiry from the Mandalay Bay Hotel, thanking me for using their services, wanting me to rate what went on, a space to compliment certain staff members, any other complaints. But virtually every other service business does this these days. It certainly wasn't the way I was raised early on in medicine. I remember this getting the same thing. I also had some connection with one of the exhibits down there, and I couldn't get over how friendly and helpful across the board the Freeman people were who set up the exhibits in terms of helping you out. It was like it wasn't just one person. They had a culture of doing the right thing and going out of their way to help their clients. And I was very impressed. What do you do with a person who's just flipping crazy, who calls you to complain and complain, and even you with your dulcet tones and your scripting and 20 years of experience can't fix them because they've got a personality disorder? How does these interactions with those types of people, which are a very small minority, I understand, but they seem like a very large minority when they're on your case, how do you end it? So, great question. Frequently with people that will take all of your time, if you gave it to them, you have to draw boundaries. And some of those boundaries are time boundaries. And so, our advice around, this is called the difficult patient category. and We've got four of them that we talk about and what is the underlying motivation, but then also the helpful hints and tips. With that kind of a patient, it is about drawing boundaries. But interestingly, you can listen for a long time, as long as I know, Randy Pilgrim knows, that in 20 minutes, I will have to end the conversation. And maybe I will have one more boundary, which is, may I call you back two days from now and see if we can have another discussion about this? I'm concerned that I didn't address your complaint and your concern, but I want to have another shot at that. May I call you in a couple of days? I have time for that. But I've drawn a boundary. It's 20 minutes. And I'm going to draw another one. I'm not calling you until two days. And at that time, I'll do it for 20 minutes. And all I can do with that, because there are people you can't fix. There's actually a slide in my talk about that. All you can do, which sometimes is a lot, is walk with them in their own pain and draw boundaries. You can't, at the end of the day, crater your mission to the other patients for this one alone. And some people, all you can do is walk with them. You can't fix anything. So, Randy, you're not in favor of reminding them that you have a cousin who's an ex-Green Beret and you have their address, their entire address, including their work address, that sort of thing. That's going over the top, I take it. 
Yeah, we deleted that line from the policy. Well, the last thing is, have you read the book Delivering Happiness? It's by Tony Shea, who started Zappos with a couple of other guys, and they have become a billion-dollar industry. More than that, just got bought by Amazon because of customer satisfaction. If anybody's interested in how you do it, not in terms of medicine, but the how you do it better than anybody probably in any industry does it, then that's a book to listen to. It's also a fascinating read or listen if you're an audiobook person. Well, Randy, I wanted to thank you for giving us your time and insights. To be candid, your ability to express this topic really helps understand why you have become the chief medical officer of that organization. I think you did a terrific job. And I think that's why I'm not. And that's why you'll never be. <laughs> well, thank you, Rick. Delman, this was a pleasure. I enjoyed this. I really appreciate it. And thanks for making this a part of what you do. I have to tell you, I really appreciate what you do. And by the way, this is the flipping crazy thing, Mel. Um, I mean, if you're really nuts, maybe they need to be one of your partners. And you can get on this recording, too. <laughs> exactly. Yes, Next topic, standard of care. This is an arm wrestle in every malpractice case we get into, and I wanted to read you an outline of a paper that I think really, really, really is good, and then we're going to talk with our guest. This paper is entitled, Objective Determination of Standard of Care, Use of Blind Readings by External Radiologists. It was published in the American Journal of Radiology in August. The CT scans of six typical ED patients were given to 31 radiologists for blind interpretation. They did get some clinical history as would occur in any other hospital setting. Unbeknownst to the radiologists, who two-thirds of them were academic radiologists, the average experience was eight years, one of the cases had been the subject of a malpractice case. In the malpractice case, four plaintiff experts said the radiologists who read the x-ray missed three findings, one of them critical to the case. Our 31 radiologists did not know that. They were asked to interpret all six CT studies. And when they looked at the study that involved the malpractice case, remember there's three critical findings. Not one of the radiologists commented on two of the three findings. And the third finding, which was not considered to be the essential finding, only 60% commented on. So the bottom line is, and frankly, of the three, there was one that was considered the one that was absolutely the one that was the deal breaker, and not one of the 31 radiologists picked it up. Uh, Rick, this is exactly the same as been shown in multiple other studies, the most famous one being from the Mayo Clinic, where they put a bunch of kids' chest x-rays. They disagreed with each other 25% of the time on whether a kid had pneumonia or not. They put the same x-rays in six months later they disagreed with themselves each individual radiologist disagreed with themselves 25 percent of the time well this was zero for 31 zero yeah, for that's 31 bad. that's bad and so authors go on to say this idea of paid medical experts going head to head against each other just doesn't work as reflected by this case so it gets us into the broader case of standard of care. And our guest today is Mark Plaster. Mark, everybody in the world knows Mark because he's the publisher of Emergency Physicians Monthly. But Mark is a MDJD and has initiated a project in his paper called the Standard of Care Project. Mark, you want to tell us a little bit about that? We're not worthy. Go ahead, Mark. Welcome, Mark. Thanks a lot, guys. (laughs) 
About 10 years ago, we started actually this same project actually on a case-by-case basis called the Standard of Care Project. And what I did was I sent actual cases after they had been litigated, repeating exactly the same thing that you're talking about. We never published any of this as far as a study was concerned, only the opinions of people. And we found exactly what you said. That is, there was a lot of operator variability on almost everything. But the thing that bothered me the most, even looking at the variability, was the very same problem that I saw in court was carried out in this discussion among our colleagues, and that is that there was a lot of back and forth about what the perfect care was. And what we really set up for ourselves was stating that anybody who disagreed with my idea of the ideal care, best practices, obviously was negligent. And that's basically what those radiologists were reflecting was that they saw it, and of course they saw it because they knew to look for something. They knew that something had to be wrong. This was the the subject of a case. And so they found it. If you didn't know that it was the subject of a lawsuit, then you wouldn't see it, and the radiologists showed that. So what we really proved was that physicians, when they know things happen bad, they really go after each other. They assume that they would never miss it. They would never make such a mistake, but it's always after the fact. So about a year ago, we started talking about taking this to the next level. And what that really meant was to make some broad statements about what the standard of care is in some highly litigious areas and see if we can get massive approval. And again, I want to emphasize that the key to the standard of care project is that we are not debating what is best practice. We are not. There is a floor of negligence, which is the standard of care, and there is best practice, and there is lots of room for judgment in between that, in which if if there are bad outcomes, it's not because people were negligent. It was because maybe their judgment was inaccurate in a particular case, but they weren't negligent. That's the key. What you're talking about here is minimally acceptable care, a practice which would be minimally acceptable, and there may be more than one form of practice, which may be minimally acceptable at any moment in time. Right. And each time that I talk to various people about this, their fear, of course, is that I'm trying to dumb down best practice. And we're not talking about best practice. We're talking about the standard beneath which is negligence. And I really emphasize that negligence. This is the standard of practice that you practice at and you need to pay. (laughs) It's bad practice. But there's a lot of room between the standard of care and best practice in various areas. And as an example, we started out with the first question that we posed to the universe of emergency physicians that we launched this recently at the American College of Emergency Physicians Scientific Assembly. We were asking people to sign up. I'll tell you more about how the mechanism works in a second. But we were pointing out the fact that you can give thrombolytics to a patient with ischemic stroke, and if they have a bad outcome, you get sued. And the claim is you were negligent. You shouldn't have given the drug. And you can decide not to give the drug and have a bad outcome, and you can be sued, and experts will claim you were negligent because you should have given the drug. Well, obviously, that reflects that there is no standard of care, that the studies are not significantly accepted, at least widely enough, that we recognize that you always have to do one way or the other. And so what we proposed is simply to state that given the state of the research, there exists right at the current time that the standard doesn't require you to give it or not to give it regardless of the outcome. That is purely physician judgment. And that is the standard. That should be the standard beneath which is negligence. 
And you shouldn't be able to be sued one way or the other, whether you give the thrombolytic or whether you don't give the thrombolytic. That's the idea. And the way the system works, actually, is we put a statement on the Internet on our website, epmonthly.com slash SOC, Standard of Care. It's on the front page. Just click on it. And if you agree with that statement, you vote, I agree. If you disagree with the statement, you say, I disagree. We don't try to shade you one way or the other. But the point of it is, it's all about numbers. In a court, you've got one person on one side, one person on the other side. The jury doesn't know one way or the other. But if 20,000 physicians agreed with the position of one of those physicians, that should have some weight. It's not going to change whether we have experts or not, but it will add to the debate in, I think, a meaningful way. We plan to publish these standards. I've already got a judge on board. He thought it was a great idea. He thought it would be very, very helpful. And believe it or not, we'll have lawyers, real trial lawyers, who will be looking at this. And, of course, they're not going to be real happy about it. But the fact is, if all the physicians are lining up on one side of the fence on an issue, they would like to know that because they're not going to bring cases that they know they're going to get wailed on when the expert comes in. Mark, let me raise a couple questions about the science of this. If there are 42,000 physicians practicing emergency medicine of some kind in the United States, and when you think about it, there's about 4,100 to 4,200 emergency departments. You do the math there, so it averages, what, 8, 10 guys per department. What do you consider to be a statistically significant number to answer this question? to have any reliability or any weight of authority in the medical community? You know, I think that the statisticians would answer that. I think Rick could probably comment on that better than I. I'm actually going for just raw weight, and that is that if I could get 20,000 people, 20,000 bona fide emergency physicians who agreed with one side overwhelmingly with one single standard, I think that you could make a pretty convincing case that that reflected the majority opinion. Well, Mark, you would still, I guess, add up your data and say the intuition is that it's going to be clear that emergency physicians don't view this as the standard of care. And the statement that you're able to make with your data will be then combined with the American College of Emergency Physicians and AAEM and the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians regarding their statements about the same thing, that they don't think that this is the standard of care or at least they declared that it's not the standard of care. And so yours would be one more piece of evidence supporting that it's not the standard of care. But there would still be plaintiffs and experts and defendants experts trying to convince the jury. And this will just be one more element in that battle. Absolutely. No, it's not going to be the end of the discussion. It's just that when you introduce... You know, you've testified as an expert in cases before, and someone will hold up a textbook and say, is this authoritative? And, of course, one side will say it is, and one side will say it's a source. And they'll hold up the white paper from the American College of Emergency Physicians, and they'll say, is this authoritative? And someone will say, yes, it is authoritative, and the other will say it's a source. But when you can say that this statement was agreed to by 20,000, you know, ASEP doesn't have any votes other than maybe a committee and neither does AAM. They don't represent a massive number. This is the first time that anybody has attempted to do the impossible, and that is to get emergency physicians to agree on anything. And I think that if we can, and that remains to be seen whether we can or not, but if we can get people to sign on in huge numbers and click yes or no and declare their opinion as to what the standard of care in various cases is, 
then that will have weight uh, more than just the authority of academicians or the authority of a society, but the authority of numbers. This is how we practice. That's what the court really wants to know. What would the average physician do in a similar circumstance? And these are average physicians who are verifying that they are, in fact, emergency physicians, and they're saying, this is what I believe the standard of care is. It's as close to what the court would like to have, which is a broad-scale opinion. Well, what you're saying here, Mark, is that the standard of care is not what should be done. It's what is being done. What is the actual standard? What's happening out there in the medical community? Exactly. And the importance is that it's before a case occurs. We're not looking back at a case because I've proven through our own examinations in the past that doctors kind of act like the right stuff pilot. You know, when somebody would auger in their jet, they would all sit around and say, I would never have done that. I have the right stuff. That's where that title came from. I would never have done that. I would have seen that law in the x-ray. I wouldn't have taken that course of action. Of course, that's all retrospective. But then when you look at how they actually practice prospectively, then it's a whole different story. And that's the effort here is to look at it and make statements about this is how I actually do practice. Well, Mark, you've given us a pretty good idea of where you're going with this. How many people have so far signed up to log in to weigh in on this particular scenario of the TPA? It's going on a day-by-day basis. We have a, currently about 5,000 participants. It's going pretty fast. And everyone that I've talked to so far who understands what we're trying to do is really solidly for it. We're getting ready to publish the next standard. We're open to suggestions from all kinds of sources, yourselves and others, as to what the standards need to be. They're stated very broadly. And generally, a suggestion for the second standard was that barring a change in, and I'm paraphrasing here, but barring a change in the clinical condition, a repeat visit for a chronic problem does not require, standard of care does not require, retesting. And it's aimed directly at the claim that when people come back in with the same problem, same time, that people have a tendency to rescan and re-x-ray and retest. And barring clinical changes in the judgment of the clinician, the standard of care does not require us to go back and repeat every single exam. And that's something that people are currently doing. What you're saying is repeat every single test. Reexamination is required in general under the standard of care. If someone comes in with low back pain, you still have to examine their back, look at their neurovascular status in their legs, that sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. No, in fact, I think the standard actually says serial examination, I think, but I'd have to actually look at it. I'm not looking at the text of it right now. Before it's actually published, we're sending it to, I'm sure you will get it, sending it to a judge and some others. But actually, as this starts to develop, we're interested in forming a standards board, meeting people with risk management experience like yourselves who could put forth the language for future standards that people would actually vote on and say, this is a standard, this is not a standard. I can tell you that there's an area that is going to really put us under a crunch here very shortly, is that as we come under more and more pressure to cut costs, we're going to come under more pressure to test less, which we mostly agree with, but we're fearful of litigation. We're fearful if we don't get that extra CT scan or that extra test, things that we know in our hearts are probably not necessary, but we do them because we're fearful of being sued. If we proactively set up what is reasonable practice, then we, in essence, will be setting these standards and protecting ourselves. That's one of the benefits I see that's going to happen. Well, to some extent, though, Mark, we're afraid of a boogeyman who doesn't exist. It's very hard to prove 
that the doing or not doing of a particular test actually is what determines malpractice. People say things in lawsuits all the time, but it would be pretty hard to prove that every kid with abdominal pain of any kind needs a CT scan. And I think that a lot of our listeners and certainly a lot of people in general in emergency medicine are being kowtowed and forced into some of these positions, which are just ridiculous. But that's exactly right. If we tell each other that we all agree that repeat testing and CT scanning is not necessary, then it's kind of like we're all agreeing that we're going to go by the graveyard. We're going to hold hands and we're not going to be afraid. And that's essentially what happens when you have large numbers of people voting and saying, yes, this is the standard. I will adhere to the standard. It's reasonable. Well, Ricky, do you see any obvious problems with Mark's project? I really don't. It is what it is. It's basically the opinion of a lot of doctors. And if somebody wants to start tearing this down, they'll say, well, what about the other 10,000 that didn't answer your, maybe there's a selection bias here. This isn't being presented as a end-all, be-all with regards to methodology. I think that if a jury is presented with the fact that of 20,000 people who answered the question, 18,000, 19,000 said this and 1,000 said that, it's kind of hard to ignore it. But I honestly don't think it would carry the statements of these societies are based on committees doing research and reviewing the literature. So they have their own database by which they've come up with this conclusion. And when they come out with it, it's generally supported by the the membership. So they all have their methodologies for trying to defend the same statement. And this is just coming from a different point of view. Absolutely. I'm not attempting to invalidate anything that the colleges have done. Actually, the truth is we could take the statements that the colleges have made, have emergency physicians vote on those statements. Those would be great launching points because not only would you have the white papers and the research and the expertise of the academicians behind it, but now you would actually have thousands of people agreeing to it. And not only would you have the benefit in court of having those thousands of people who agree to it, in essence, it serves as an educational tool where they have all said, okay, that's what we agree. That's what we're going to do. And I see that as a byproduct of this is we've talked about variation, about people doing a lot of different approaches. If we start to understand, if we start to agree broadly about what the basic care is on some of these things, I think that we will start on the road to diminishing the amount of variation that exists in our practice. I would welcome ASAP and AAEM submitting their standards to this. I would caution, however, that at some point in time along the way, we're going to get to a point where agreement is going to be very difficult to come up with. For example, if we started to do a project looking at the standard of care for supervision of PAs and nurse practitioners in departments, Some of that is structured and controlled by state law itself, and thus the responses to a national survey would be variable state to state. So there may not be a true ability to assess standard of care simply because the state practice is so individual with regard to some of these issues. Well, that's the beauty of the Internet, though, because by registering where you practice, these can actually be sorted out by state. So we could say that there are 8,000 emergency physicians in Tennessee who agree with this statement. 
I spoke to a judge in Tennessee yesterday about this, and he was very enthusiastic. And I said, how can you see this helping? And he said, well, actually, they already have something similar to that from the standpoint of when there's two experts testifying then he can go out of state to get a third expert. I said, would you be interested in knowing what several thousand in-state practitioners thought of a broad statement standard? And he said that would help him determine whether the case should even go forward. So I was very encouraged by his support. Did he give you any sense, Mark, whether any of this would be discoverable or admissible at the time of trial? Because certainly there would be motions on the part of plaintiff to exclude this kind of information simply because it was a bunch of doctors being self-serving with regard to protecting their own. No, he didn't, and that discussion has been held repeatedly. I don't know how that's going to work. We're trying to make these statements neutral from the standpoint of do you agree or do you disagree. We have no problem with saying 10,000 on one side, 10,000 on another side, which basically says that there is no agreement. It is what it is. Like I've told everybody, I'm not trying to tell you how to vote. I just want you to vote. I want to know what your standard is. Understand that there are cases throughout the states and most of them subscribe to a form of the federal standard, which is the Daubert v. Merrill Dow Challenge, which we've discussed many times here on Risk Management Monthly, whereby someone is allowed to be accused of quote-unquote junk science, and that uh, junk science needs to be excluded. Basically, what we're looking for here is a way of stating anything below this level is junk science, and we're not going to tolerate it anymore. Perfect. That's exactly right. Mark, thanks very much for reviewing your project with us. And those of you who are listeners, you can find out more about it in EP Monthly and go onto their website and participate. I wish you luck on it. I think that the idea of getting lots and lots of doctors is always a challenge, but I think there's also a fair amount of motivation on people's part to participate in this because particularly depending on what the question is, it comes up with some frequency and it is a major source of angst for these physicians. Yeah. Well, I'm going on the road. I have a passion for this because I think that it's a major step forward and providing the courts with what they need. And hopefully if we did this, it would be a way of really using the system the way it's intended to be and hopefully cut out some of the frivolous lawsuits. Mark, we want to follow this up. We're going to keep tabs on you and the project, and we look forward to having you back the first time this is used in a court case. Gregory, give us a little bit about Wine of the Month, if you would. Oh, Wine of the Month. Hey, uh, again, one of the favorite uh, things I do is uh, look through all the wine magazines and see things that I've tried and all that sort of thing. And when they, the two match up, it's great. One of those which is highly recommended uh, this month is something called Foxglove. Now, <laughs> I don't think it has anything to do with the Foxglove that the most doctors are familiar with, but this is a winery. Uh, and I believe that it is in New York State. They are listing a 2009 Chardonnay, uh, Central Coast, for about 16 bucks a bottle, and uh, this one is very highly rated. Now, I know that Mel likes things, you know, under $4 a, 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 yes. a car, tank car load, but uh, 16 bucks a bottle, come on, Mel, I think most of us can afford this one. I can afford one... Uh, every month at that uh, price, but that's okay. That's wine of the Ladies month. Ladies and gentlemen, can we take up a collection for poor Mel? That's Mel, right. drink it. You'll or, like it. Dude, when you're drinking three bottles a day, that, that bloody adds up. 
it is a problem. It is, this is an Australian problem. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. We'll, bye, guys. We'll talk with you next month. Bye.